Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Katie Moore. She graduated from East Carolina University in 2008 with a master's degree and has been working in outpatient rehab at Duke Raleigh Hospital for almost six years as an adult medical SLP. Katie has experience working in a variety of settings, including acute care, inpatient rehab, adjunct professor, as well as a brief time in early intervention. She's completed certifications and advanced trainings, including fees, MBSIMP, LSVT Loud, Speak Out, MDTP, Vital Stim, and ArcJ Trismus. When taking her current job nearly six years ago, she was challenged with building a speech therapy caseload from the ground up. She learned how to navigate hospital administration and hierarchy to advocate for expansion of speech therapy services to better serve her community. In 2018, she presented to the North Carolina Lymphedema Association and was selected by Duke Raleigh Hospital to serve as the outpatient rehab representative for the COMPASS study. In 2020, she established a relationship with the pulmonary group and pulmonary rehab to reduce hospital to reduce hospitalization and readmissions for patients with COPD and was selected to work with the National Electronic Medical Record Company to help streamline their speech therapy documentation. Most recently in 2022, she successfully opened a speech therapy clinic in her hospital's cancer center to see patients with head and neck cancer as part of a multidisciplinary approach to treatment and has also come on board with the Medical SLP Collective as a community manager and mentor. Through her hard work and tenacious attitude, she's been able to not only build the speech therapy program to support her full-time position, but has expanded services to need a second full-time SLP and three additional SLPs that together provide another 20 hours of therapy each week. She's developed a passion for advocating for serving patients with evidence-based practice and improving access to care through education and advocacy. Through the opportunities to build a speech therapy program, she has learned resilience, patience, and an immense amount of respect for all of the behind-the-scenes steps that are required to put a plan into action. I just love this episode. I hope you all will, too. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. 
So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. I was about to say good morning, Katie. Good morning, Katie. Hello, Katie. Hey, Teresa. <laughs> good afternoon. Thank you for joining me. Happy to be here. All right. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. So my name's Katie Moore. I've been a speech pathologist for, I always have to do the math, um, 14, almost 15 years now. And I work in an outpatient adult uh, population, primarily with head and neck cancer, and have really grown that outpatient program within my hospital setting. And I'm really excited to talk to everybody today about that. Awesome. All right. Well, let's let's dive in. Where should we where should we start? Oh, man. I don't know. I guess, um, you know, just kind of taking it back to when it started for me. When I started as a speech therapist, I was in acute care um, and inpatient rehab facilities. So I was very used to big, large teams of speech pathologists. Just, you know, the systems were already in place. You come in, you see the patients, you get your job done, you leave. And then six, about six years ago, I, um, I needed a change just for my personal life, that work life balance, better mom schedule, no weekends and holidays. So, on a whim, I took a position in an outpatient rehab facility where I was coming in replacing a speech therapist who is only seeing patients on a PRN basis. So maybe like two to four sessions a week. Um, but my whole job hinged on being able to build that caseload to support a full-time position in a year. And I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> it was probably Looking back, I don't know how I was okay doing that because that's so not my personality. Yeah, I like I like to know the plan. I like to know there's a plan in place. But um, it was just you know the timing was what I needed at that time, and I've learned so much through that process in terms of you know advocating for services, building programs. And how speech therapy is so different on the outpatient side than it is on the acute care inpatient side of things. I love that. I love that. Yeah. So having one of the things that I had to learn um, very early on was that nothing happens fast in a health system, especially a large health system. So even though I had this timeline kind of put on me that I had to grow these services um, in the matter of a year, the hospital's timeline did not run on my timeline. And so I had to learn who I had to go to within the hospital's administrative structure to try to market our services and just even tell people, you know, hey, we're here, send your patients to us. But learning the hard way that it's not as easy as just picking up the phone or sending an email and saying, hey, we need to market ourselves. It's layers of developing materials. 15 people have to sign off on it before it can go out to providers within the health system, let alone providers outside of the health system. Really getting to know our our marketing departments, the 
we have these um, positions called health system administrators within some of the specialty practices and getting to know who those people were for like our neurology department, our ENT department, because you can't get meetings directly with physicians. Um, <laughs> it's very hard to do. And so your entry into that, I had to learn is those health system administrators. Um, and so learning the ropes of how our health system is set up, who I need to go through to get to the people that I needed to get in front of to let them know, you know, hey, we're here. This is how I can help your patients. And then being able to follow up on the back end to make sure they have your contact information, how to get referrals to you. You know, you take for granted sometimes that like we have these great electronic medical records, but if you don't know all the ins and outs and how to use it and how the the systems look differently for physician providers versus other providers, even just having the doctors put an order in for you and getting that order to you so you know about the patient was a whole learning process that took three months on how to make that happen. And when you're trying to build that program, that was not even on my radar about having to try to figure out. I'm like, you just put the order in. Like, <laughs> isn't that how it works everywhere? Yeah. No. <laughs> I love that you're talking about this because I think it's something that's not talked about a lot. You know, people are like, how do all these hospitals have these programs or have these things? How do I get this started? And I think that's the first thing I tell people is that you're not going to have it. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a while. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm, I'm six years into this position and I did, obviously, I grew that caseload. I still have my position and we've been able to really grow that position to now having a second full time therapist on staff and three part-time speech therapists that cover like one day a week and some swallow studies type of things. But like, we're still working on it. You know, there are still things that from day one, when I walked in that door are still on my to-do list that we're still every couple of months, we kind of circle back and okay, where's the updates on this and yeah, how to keep moving those things forward. And it's, really easy to lose sight and get disheartened. And that was hard for me. That was my type A personality is like, no, no, like this is on my list. I have to have it done by Friday before I leave. Like, I think that's hard for speech therapists in general, just with our personalities. Yeah. Talk about getting that second full-time person there, Katie. Were you, for lack of a better term, instrumental in having that happen? Yes. Um, so to get that second position approved, I got to know our labor relations department really closely. I needed to understand what the metrics were that they needed to look at in order to approve another position. Okay. Um, because it's not just your productivity. It's, it was a whole combination of factors of how long is your wait list? You know, how many patients are we turning away to other health systems um, because they can't get in? What impacts does this have financially for the hospital to bring in another person with a full-time salary and benefits versus what they're going to be able to bill? What happens when the census drops? You know, how do we account for all of that? And so I know so much of, at least what I was used to, 
is that productivity. You know, yes, I was a hundred percent productive, but initially when I kind of brought this up to my my immediate supervisor, my wait list really wasn't significant. You know, I was only had a, maybe a couple weeks to get new evals in. And so from my perspective as a speech therapist, when these are swallowing evaluations and kind of things that are critical to patient medical status and safety, it's a big deal if there's a wait list. But to the to the big health system perspective, a couple week wait isn't bad. I mean, our specialists have three to four month wait list. Right, right. So I was really working very hard and um, trying to squeeze in extra patients. And it did get to the point where my wait list was about two to three months. And I was keeping very detailed notes, like in a um, a box. Uh, what is that? The box on the web that's kind of secure for patient information um, of every referral that came in, how long it took them to actually be seen, how many of how many ended up going elsewhere for their services because they could get in faster. And so once I had all that information, we were able to go to labor relations and say, here's what we're, you know, here's what we're looking at. Here's our plan for that. If our census drops, you know, outpatient kind of ebbs and flow, you know, here's the backup plan of how our speech therapists are still going to be productive. So we did get cross-trained to cover acute care um, for when census might drop and things like that. And so they finally approved that second position probably about a year after I had built my my caseload up to a full-time caseload. We had that second position open. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for laying that all out there. I think that's a common Question. I know we get that in the collective a lot is like, I'm exploding. We need to hire. How do I, you know, how do I justify that? So thank you. I think that's very valuable. Yeah. I think the biggest takeaway with all of that is just talk to, you know, the department that kind of approves positions and figure out what metrics are they looking for. So you can start collecting that data when you start to feel the pinch and not waiting until you're like overwhelmed and bursting at the seams really needing another position, know what the metrics are and have be collecting your data so that when push comes to shove, you have it to present and not have to start gathering at that point and delay it another three months or six months or things like that. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. To help make sure we were keeping the two of us full, um, we did have to kind of get we had to start getting a little bit creative because um, when we brought on that second full-time therapist, we did, we cut our wait list, which was great. Our patients were getting in, but our productivity wasn't, you know, where the hospital wanted it. And so we had to start thinking about, okay, how can we get more patients in here aside from kind of your, your go-to, your, you know, your strokes, your, kind of run-of-the-mill cognitive decline, dementia, kind of Parkinson's, what we see on that outpatient basis. And my supervisor had this great idea. She's a physical therapist, so she's so not in the speech therapy realm, and she will be the first person to tell you that. Um, she's like, you know, we have a pulmonary, outpatient pulmonary rehab department. You know, I'm not really sure how much overlap there might be with speech therapy and pulmonary rehab. And this was right around the time where we brought respiratory muscle strength training 
into our clinic as a um, dysphagia intervention. And she's like, I don't know, there's got to be something with those devices that you guys use and this, you know, that pulmonary rehab population. So I went over, I observed some of their classes and got to speak with the exercise physiologist and the respiratory therapist and kind of getting an idea of their biggest population was COPD patients. And they were talking, one of the things they were talking about is that even though they were had their patients in pulmonary rehab, a lot of their patients were still having frequent hospitalizations for COPD. Mm-hmm. And so um, just kind of my background with understanding that relationship between breathing and swallowing, um, you know, I started trying to pull some some research and not just go on kind of like my clinical assumptions. And so I listed some articles in the references for today that are specific to like COPD and the incidence of dysphagia and aspiration. And one of the things that really stood out to me was aspiration is one of the leading causes for COPD exacerbations. And so I kind of used that as a, a launching board. Then I found some more research about the benefits of expiratory muscle strength training in the COPD population and how we know that the EMST also helps with certain aspects of dysphagia. And so I brought this kind of proposal of what if we had these pulmonary rehab patients when they were going through their intake process with pulmonary rehab. We have the staff administer the EAT-10 because the EAT-10 is also a, it has been researched specifically within the COPD population and they were totally on board. Um, and so if they had a three or higher on the EAT-10, which is the cutoff for possible dysphagia, they, we created a protocol with the pulmonologist that they could put in a speech therapy referral for a swallowing evaluation. And so we started capturing a lot of patients through this. We would start with a clinical swallow eval, which is a little bit different in outpatient. A lot of times when we get our clinical swallow evals, they come straight in for VFSS or fees. But we would start them with a clinical swallow eval. We would do respiratory um, muscle testing for MIP and MEP using our digital manometers, see if they um, if their numbers were below where we would expect, and then also do, we would do the Yale swallow protocol and administer additional PO trials if we needed to, and then go on for a fees or a VFSS if indicated. And we would follow these patients during their pulmonary rehab, having them doing the EMST and pulmonary rehab was seeing better outcomes for their patients. They would use their overall quality of life scores were better at discharge than before we started this kind of partnership. And so that's continued now. And so we have been seeing the past year, I think we evaluated 120 patients um, and then continued to follow them kind of through their rehab, swallowing therapy, if indicated, you know, if indicated and if their swallow study looked good, we would still, if their MIPS and MEPS were low, we would still follow them just once a month for reassessing MIP and MEP for kind of a proactive approach to dysphagia. And we've seen that's really helped boost our 
our referral base. And now pulmono- our pulmonologists are one of our highest referring providers yes, for dysphagia that. in general. It's kind of like we proved our worth, you know. Um, and that's a big thing in, in terms of building that caseload when you're that, that sole provider. You have to prove yourself to these doctors. You know, I can't tell you how many times I would eventually get a conversation with a doctor and they'd be like, well, I don't consult speech because they just make all my patients NPO (sighs) because and I have to try to explain that there's a there's kind of a there's a difference between how speech therapists have to approach dysphagia in an acute care setting when patients are acutely ill versus an outpatient setting. and. Since I've been in this outpatient setting, I've only recommended two patients NPO after a swallow study. And that was because they were like grossly aspirating every single thing and they were on their deathbeds. And those, that was after conversations with the families and the providers, not just a, I'm going to make you NPO because your swallowing's not safe situation. And if I were to look back, that's like a complete 360 from my acute care experience. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that, Katie. I always love your stories. I just, yeah, I, I love them. So thank you for sharing. Oh, you're welcome. I'd love to just totally off the record. I'd love to hear more about you setting up like the whole head and neck cancer clinic and all that stuff too. So I don't know if you want to dive into that. Yes. So, so you're sort of a serial program creator, if we must say, Katie. Uh, yes. Um, and that's not honestly something that I saw my, like saw in my, in my career outlook when I took this position, I was just like, I'm going to build the caseload. We're going to get into a routine and that's just kind of going to be it. But that didn't happen. Um, after the success of building the caseload to bring on the second speech therapist, making that relationship with pulmonary rehab to be able to sustain that relationship. And ultimately kind of push us to the point where we've needed some occasional help a couple days a week. There was another um, need that kind of came through the hospital, you know, like most hospitals, they hired a dedicated head and neck surgeon, but never thought about the downstream effects of what might happen by doing so. And this particular head and neck surgeon does a uh, really came with the specialty of doing free flap surgeries and total laryngectomies. So their initial thought process was we were going to need a speech therapist who could change TEPs. And they we have dedicated speech therapists out at our bigger hospital um, about 45 minutes away that do this. But this head and neck surgeon was like, my patients are going to get care here. They are not going to drive 45 minutes if their prosthesis is leaking or something like that. So she basically threw it back to our bigger speech department of like, you're going to figure this out. And I, at some point, I kind of got pulled into the conversation because I have had experience changing TEPs from a prior job. And when I got brought into these conversations, I'm like, why are we stopping at TEPs? I'm like, cause the, I came to find out that the goal was to truly build a head and neck program within our cancer center. And I'm like, why are we stopping at TEPs? We know the impact of not just the surgery, but the chemo and the radiation and what that's going to have for these patients. So 
we started conversations of having speech therapy being more involved with these head and neck patients in addition to the TEPs. Mm -hmm. And then COVID happened. And then everything just kind of came to a, a halt. The surgeon did come on. The surgeon was doing surgeries. And we were occasionally like getting some referrals that would trickle through and we'd see them in our outpatient clinic, but it just, it wasn't a good system. So I reached, you know, the, the surgeon and I have a, have a really great relationship. You know, she's got my cell phone number. She'll pick up the phone and call me and be like, I need you to see this patient yesterday. How can we make this happen? And so we, you know, we were talking, we were like, there's got to be a way to streamline this process. Like, why can't speech therapy be in the cancer center? You know, when the patients are here, they're getting radiation treatments, they're getting chemo infusions, they're seeing all the other doctors. Like, it would be great if we could just have you pop in and see them while they're here. So I went on a whim and I emailed the director of the cancer center and I was like, how can I make this happen? (laughs) Totally not expecting a response or anything. And she responded like less than within less than two hours and was 100% on board with, we are going to find a way to get you in this cancer center. And so in working with her and again, the learning process of how do you do this? How, how do you do this from a billing standpoint, a physical space standpoint, what are the different types of supplies and materials needed for this specific population? Um, so we had to work through all of those, those hiccups and those logistics. And in February of 2022, we actually went live. We opened speech therapy in the cancer center. So I worked directly in the same office as our surgeon. Right now it is two days a week because those are the two days a week she's in clinic. And then she has two surgical days and a a teaching day. So I'm in her clinic two days a week and we have, we've got a great flow. On Tuesdays, we meet as a team with the radiation oncologist, the medical oncologist, the surgeon, the nurse manager, the radiologist, everybody to kind of talk about the new patients coming in that day. And I am now part of kind of their standard order set for those patients coming in that day. And the nurse navigator will kind of send me a message and say, hey, so-and-so is done seeing the patient. It's going to be, you know, 40 minutes before the next one can come in. You want to come see this patient now. And so I'm part of that pre-treatment education now, which is like, I think every speech therapist dream who works with this population to be able to start with these patients before they start any of their treatment. And the patients are so much, I guess, happier, but nobody's happy going through cancer treatment because they know what to expect. You know, it's not like they were just blindsided and they hear it more because I, you know, I have the ability on the days that I'm there to walk down to radiation oncology and just, you know, somebody's coming in for their treatment. I can take them into a consult room when they're done and we can just chat, you know, for 10 minutes. How are things going? And then if we need to do interventions, I can do that with just kind of put them into a a formal appointment and do interventions that way. So we actually have a goal to hopefully 
fingers crossed in the next year, go to four days a week. The head and neck surgeons bringing on a PA and a second surgeon and our medical oncologist who treats our head and neck patients is moving into our clinic also. So we're really going to be a a one-stop shop now. Amazing. Amazing. Talk a little bit about the patient satisfaction for that, Katie. I know that's such a, you know, I don't even want to say buzzword because it it is a a very real and valid thing. I'm curious if that's helped to improve those scores at all that you know of. So from what I understand, capturing the patient satisfaction scores in this population is a little bit harder because of how the hospital sends out their kind of questionnaires. It's kind of related to each provider individually. Okay. So I look more at like our patient reported outcome measures using like the MDaddy or the E10. And I've seen improved scores at the time that we're kind of ready to discharge than the patients that I, you know, two years ago where I wasn't getting them until six months after they finished radiation treatment. And now, you know, they're basically hot mess expressed NPO peg tube. Over the last three months, I've only had one patient that has needed to be solely peg tube dependent at the end of their treatment. Every other patient has been able to maintain at least some level of PO intake. And the feedback from the providers is that this is like completely different to, for them. They're they're not used to this in a good way. They're not used to their patients being able to eat during their last week of radiation treatments. Um, and so the providers are very happy with how the patients are doing as well. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So I know that's something that I hear a lot of. My employer won't pay for any of my continuing education. Yep. And so I 100% came from prior positions where that was very much the case. Like the speech therapy continuing ed budget was like $50, like whoop-de-doo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so now what the process is where I work is they're open for continuing education, but you have to be able to justify how the continuing education is going to benefit the patients and the health system, not just to help you get your, you know, 30 hours for ASHA kind of thing. And so, you know, they're not going to pay for like a year subscription to MedBridge or something like that. They're going to want to look for things that are really going to make them stand out, kind of stand, stand apart from other providers. So when I first started, we had a, a decent like neuro population, um, but we weren't seeing a ton of Parkinson's patients, even though we do have like a dedicated movement disorders clinic. So I had um, advocated for the physical therapists to get certified in LSVT big and for myself to get certified in LSVT loud with the basis of here is evidence-based treatment interventions for a very specific population that we have a dedicated neurology clinic for, but we don't have the therapist to treat this population. Um, and so I did, you know, I had to kind of pull the supporting research for LSVT at the time and the talking with some of the physicians from the movement disorders clinic to kind of get a physician champion almost like, yes, like if you do this, we will support you. 
And I, you know, kind of had to write a proposal and no questions asked. It was approved. Um, and then they continued to pay our renewal fees that happened like every two years to stay up with that because it gives them something else that they can market with. They can market that our outpatient rehab is LSVT certified. So now they go to like our, the Parkinson support groups in the areas and they can advertise like we have these providers that are specifically trained for this population. Same, same thing with the head and neck population as we were, well, I had clinical experience I'm not, I'm not a letter chaser. I don't have a ton of letters after my names, but sometimes the hospital kind of wants to be able to say like, yes, our providers have advanced certifications in certain areas. So I was using that. I was able to advocate for going to the ArcJ Trismus program. Um, so we could advertise the Trismus interventions for going to the McNeil dysphagia treatment program in order to advertise that getting MBS IMP certified to that wasn't really from a marketing standpoint. That was just more from a standardizing our swallow study documentation to then improve our subsequent treatment interventions, bringing respiratory muscle strength training into the clinic. These are the things that from the hospital's marketing standpoint are, are marketable things, but that are also supported with research and have continuing education opportunities to make us competent providers using those modalities. So you kind of have to work the system a little bit um, and kind of change how you approach those CEUs. So those CEUs are not just for getting your your required hours. They really are for improving our ability to care for our patients. And so sometimes those things align with the hospital's values and what their longer term vision is. Sometimes it's not, and that's okay, but you have to know what both of those are in order to be able to advocate and get the research to justify why you want those continuing. It's like, what's the return on investment of sending you for this course? How is this going to benefit the hospital? Because unfortunately, healthcare all is is all financial, you know, as much as nobody wants to fully admit that. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing, Katie. All right. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd sort of love to talk about some, I don't know, some, some different topics here. You've done amazing work. Like I always love reading your stories. I always love reading your posts about, you know, different programs you've created or how you've, you know, broke through barriers and stuff. And I'd really sort of like to talk about the mental aspect of that. Like, how do you feel? I Sometimes like I get it. You just feel like you're bashing your head against a wall, making no progress whatsoever. So I can only imagine you probably, I'm sorry if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I can only (laughs) imagine that you felt like that while you were growing a lot of these programs. Do do you see all these dents in my forehead? That's from the bricks. (laughs) (laughs) You know, thinking about like the past six years have been, they have been so so career changing for me. And when I can sit in a moment and kind of look back at everything I've done in those six years, it's like, wow, like, okay, all of that stress and you know, head banging into the wall was totally worth it. Like, look at what what I've been able to build and the services I've been able to provide 
for the patients. But in the day to day, I mean, there were, I, there have been times where, you know, that cliche sitting in your car and crying, been there, done that, <laughs> like wanting to throw in the towel because it's like, what is the point? You know, like I'm have you feel like Groundhog's Day having the same conversations over and over and over again with no change. And those are the times where I usually pick up my phone and I text one, you know, a friend or it's usually Casey, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but having that person that you can kind of rely on who um, isn't involved physically in what you're doing, but that can just be a sounding board, you know, half the time, it's just getting it off your chest and having somebody who can listen and provide some in- insights from a different perspective. And sometimes that is like, Katie, you need to just chill. Like your timeline is not the hospital's timeline or no, you should feel justified in feeling that way. And that person should not be your husband Um, (laughs) because his response is usually then stop doing it. (laughs) If it's making you this crazy, why are you still doing it? Yeah. But I think that's easy to say when you don't work in patient care. So having that, having that independent person that you can know that you can pick up that phone, call, send a text message and talk it out. And they are not somebody you work with. They are not even in, in the health system. You know what I mean? Like you just have that separate sounding board and that helps kind of diffuse the in the moment situations. There have definitely been times like with this head and neck cancer clinic where I was at the point where I was just like, I'm done. I'm walking away. And for a couple months, I wouldn't, I wouldn't work on anything. I just, it was just out of, out of sight, out of mind. But then a patient would come in where had we had that clinic in that setup, there would have been a better outcome for that patient. And then that would get me fired up again. And so that, you know, that would last me a few more months until, you know, you hit that wall again. So just, you know, having a a good support system to help you through those moments where you want to throw in the towel and giving yourself permission, like if it gets to the point where it really feels like it's something's not going to happen, it's okay to let it sit for a little while. Doesn't mean you have to completely give up on it. But one of the things that I've come to learn is that if something is meant to happen, it's going to happen in its time, not your time. And so it's the patients that drive us to do what we do. And it was a particular patient that put that head and neck clinic back on my radar and encouraged me to basically send that email that got the whole ball rolling because it is hard. It can be really discouraging, especially when everybody around me isn't a speech therapist. So I don't have, you know, I have one other speech therapist that I worked with at the time and, you know, she's along for the ride. She's closer to retirement. She's just like, you know, I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm not going to, and that's not me. I'm like, I'm looking at another 30 to 35 years as a speech therapist. Like I, you know, I have a, I have a drive that you just can't take out of me right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that Katie. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Yeah. 
any, anything else you want to talk about? Any final thoughts? I, I, I just, yeah, I always love every time you post things because I think they're just so informational and educational and inspirational. It's a lot of words that all just sound alike, mm-hmm. but <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, I commend your resiliency for all of this. And I think it's just, it's, I keep going back to inspirational because I just think of so many SLPs that are out there like, working in a program that has or working in a clinic that has no programs or working in a department that just they they just feel like, you know, what am I even doing here? And I, I just think, you know, a lot of my drive is to just inspire people to go out and be that change maker, be the person that makes the change that brings in these new programs, be the person that helps all these patients. And, and, you know, I've always had a drive for this stuff, but even, you know, after I had my son too, it's just, lit a fire into me that there's so many patients out there that need the help that we're able to provide. And it's not going to be easy to get, you know, to go through all the red tape of these big organizations. It's it's going to take a while, but it's definitely worth it. So, yeah, you know, I think about even when I was working in acute care and I was more of that mindset of, oh, you know, the systems are already in place. I just come in, see my patients kind of leave at the end of the day. Somebody had to do this to get that program started, you know, and so there has to be that person or that team of people that has that drive to know better, to want to do better. And I know that's, you know, very cliche, but it's true. You know, when I came into that clinic six years ago, there were two or three walk books, a 15 year old vital sim unit, and an almost 20 year old K Pentax fees machine. And that was all I had, you know, but someone got um, those there, Katie. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you just use that as your launching board. But, um, you know, one of the, the biggest takeaways, I think, through a lot of this is, you know, as speech therapists, we're very much a, a here now. I got to get it off my timeline. Type it, type off my to do list. Wow. I can't even talk today you know, type A personality. And that has, that has come to bite me in the butt a couple times. I've had to mature, you know, not not, as a speech therapist, but even just as a person, mature, learn to not be impulsive. You know, when you get an email that just fires you up, do not respond immediately. Let it sit probably overnight. Rewrite that email a couple of times (laughs) before you hit send so that you don't have that, you know, regret. (laughs) later on. And, you know, really, I encourage you to kind of find that, find what drives you to do what you do. If it's a particular patient, if it's a, you know, for you, your son, you know, what drives you to want to do better for your patients? And so, and and write that down or, you know, post a, you know, tape up a picture, you know, by your desk. So when you're in those moments of like, why do I even bother? That's your why. So I save every note, every card a patient sends me and they're taped inside a little cabinet door that I have above my desk. And I've started, you know, when I have those days of just, why do I even bother? I just read one of those because that's my why. Yeah. I love that. I was, I was asked at my, one of my performance reviews recently of, do I feel appreciated? And they were meaning from the perspective of like the health system, you know, do you feel appreciated? Do you feel supported? And I was like, I do, you know, I do feel supported by my organization, but that's not why I do what I do. Like, I don't 
that's not what I'm looking for to validate me to do what I do. I'm like, it's the patience. I'm like, as long as I know that the patients are doing well and that the patients appreciate me, that's all, that's what I need. I don't, you know, I don't need a, a t-shirt or a coffee cup to say, Hey, we appreciate you. Yeah. I love that. I love that, Katie. I think, um, I just did a podcast recording right before this. I don't know what order any of these will come out in, but that was one of the things we talked about too, is just your why. And it, and it all comes down to the patients. And then there's just, there's obviously so much other stuff that we deal with and, and just a crap for lack of a better term and, and red tape and drama and just weird stuff that we deal with for, I don't know, no reason sometimes. And it's really just all about the patient. It, it really truly is. And I just don't know how we lose sight of that sometimes. And I know for me, it just every day, you know, sometimes I just want to bash my head against the wall too, but I just remember all the patients that were able to help and somebody out there is looking for us and we are the answer to somebody's prayers. And I just think of everything I went through with my son and to know how hard I looked for the right providers for my son too. So yes. So thank you, Katie. Thank you for all that you do. I just, I adore you to pieces. I, like I said, I just always think you're so inspirational and you're just such a wonderful light in this world and asset to this field. So thank you for, thank you for being you. Well, thank you. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.